If you ever lived in a college dorm, you know about the kind of growing pains that happen there. For a lot of people, it's their first time on their own, figuring out who they are while still holding on to everything they've come from. Come and Get It is New York Times best-selling author Kylie Reed's latest book, which yes, is set to the backdrop of dormitory life. But it's not all dingy shower stalls and stained walls. Come and Get It tackles big questions about race and class on a college campus. This is about students and adults when they're alone, wrestling with their mistakes and all of those things that keep you up at night. Today, we're talking with Kylie Reed about her new book, Gossip, and writing from research. This is Stateside. I'm Brianna Rice, in for April Bear. Hey, Kylie, congrats on your new book. Thanks so much, Brianna. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Come and Get It is about a college town in Arkansas where Millie is a Black resident advisor in a dorm at a predominantly white college. Millie meets a professor named Agatha who's interested in writing about students in Millie's dorm. The book deals with the ethics of gossip and navigating money, race, and class in college. What were you looking to do with your second book? With this novel, I was super interested in exploring money and how it operates on in a college dorm. Yes, this does take place on a college campus, but I would consider it less of a campus novel than more of a dorm novel. We have one character, Millie, who is saving everything she makes so she can buy a house. We have Agatha Paul, who's a professor, and she's looking to get over a relationship, and she's kind of splurging at the moment. And then we have Kennedy, a lonely transfer student who has a bit of a secret that she's trying to forget. Yeah, this book has so much about gossip and just listening in on things we're not supposed to hear. Often people are repeating secondhand info, whether it's Agatha or Millie. What are the ethics of gossip? That's a great question. And I think that's a question that the novel asks as well. Um, Agatha definitely does not make some ethical decisions as a journalist from taking words from young people who don't know they're being recorded. But Millie, our protagonist, you know, she has these cool new friends and they say things that she also takes as her own and she pretends like she's the one saying them. So it's a, it's a strange place. And I love the gray area of faults that are not, you know, misdemeanors, but still pretty wrong. We listen to songs all the time that are written about real people. Everyone knows who they're written about. It's a strange line. And I hope I explored that well in this novel. Yeah, I definitely think it sticks out. Um, I think race is also just a major theme throughout this book, especially the ways that Black people contort themselves to fit into social situations. I saw that a lot with Millie, and it felt like she questioned who she was and the choices she made by the end. Can you talk a little bit about how you showed how people wrestle with being Black in a white space, you know, being a young Black woman at that dorm? Sure. For Millie, she's one of the only Black students at the college And she's responsible. She's a hustler. She really wants to just do the best thing. And she also has a heart for other people. So it comes naturally to her. But Millie starts to realize that sometimes hard work doesn't pay off in the ways that you think it will. Or sometimes she feels a bit invisible and that students will treat her poorly or that by being good at her job, it almost hurts her in the long run because people know she'll pick up the slack. So Millie also comes in contact with lots of white students, but there is another black student who she comes in contact with. And she really wants to be like a big sister to this young woman, Peyton. Peyton wants nothing to do with Millie. She is so over her. So Millie has to contend with those feelings as well. Yeah. Um, I think a moment that stuck with me, and it was a small moment, was when Colette, who is another resident advisor in the dorm who is white, 
went into the storm room when a student's parents arrived and she put her hair into a cute messy bun and you said something along the lines of she was putting on another culture like putting her hair a certain way conveyed to other people in the room that she was like them another young white person I think in particular what stood out is that it doesn't matter if you're queer or have these other things that other you there are certain things you can do to like step back into your culture there are certain things you know about how to navigate spaces can you kind of talk about how you dealt with that in in the book That's a really great read. Yes, a lot of people in this novel are putting on different hats and cultures in order to get what they want. And, you know, while I don't believe that a novel should have a thesis or a grand message that it's portraying, I do think that there's a line at the beginning where Millie says, you know, people hear what they want to hear. And she's referring to another student calling her ghetto, someone saying, oh, I heard Millie say this and this and this, and they portrayed her as someone that she wasn't at all. And Millie admits that she may don a voice here or there to get what she wants, but ultimately it's what people are bringing to her voice that that define her in their eyes. Um, So a lot is being done with cultural cachet and etiquette in this novel. Those are things I was really excited to dive into. Do you want to talk about how you dived into it? I know um, there's a uh, a section of the book at the end where you you said how you you researched all of this, that the books that inspired it, and how you kind of talked to people to make it feel so real. These these sounded like real people that I could have talked to in a college dorm. How did you pull that off? I'm so glad they sounded that way too. I love when people sound like you're like, oh wait, I know that person. I can see them saying this. This novel was inspired by three other books. Each character was drawn out from three other works. The first was called Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality, written by two sociologists, Laura Hamilton and Elizabeth Armstrong, one of which works at U of M. I haven't met her yet, but I definitely (laughs) will. They did a five-year interview study with young women at a Midwestern university, tracking their finances and their pathways and opportunities available to them. It was a really wonderful book and a great read, but more than anything, I was really drawn to the premise of an academic woman interviewing people in a dorm. Millie came about from a book called Knocking the Hustle Against the Neoliberal Turn in Black Politics, written by Lester Spence. It's a beautiful portrayal of where we are now and where we came from in the civil rights era, the inevitability politics that we are forced to believe. And it's all about hustle. And Millie is all about hustle without remembering that we're all hustling from different levels sometimes. It's a really great read. And Kennedy came from a book called Monoculture, How One Story is Changing Everything by F.S. Michaels. It's a book that's all about capitalism, but without mentioning the name capitalism, which I think is very impressive. She refers to it as the economic story. And she talks about how choice kind of cripples us and how not knowing what to do does not mean that that's our choice. If just because you pick something on a menu doesn't mean that that's your absolute favorite thing. It's just the thing that you know. And Kennedy is definitely crippled by choice within all of this. But yes, I interviewed a lot of people for research for this novel, from students to Starbucks workers to baton twirlers, um, people from Chicago, anyone who would talk to me who was doing the things my characters were doing. I hope I did them justice. I didn't want to do a satire this time. I wanted to just have real people making real mistakes and doing great things on other pages as well. Um, Getting the dialogue in real time really shaped the way that I wrote. And there were a few moments where someone would say something that was so perfect that I just put their words straight into the book. Wow. I imagine that's a big feeling for those people when they read it. I, I think that's kind of the the thing that I saw a lot with Agatha, too, when she just kept coming and taking exactly what people 
said and twisted it, I guess my next question is just, um, you've been in academia for a while. I wonder if there's like part of your personal experience as a person of color, or a teacher, or a professor being on college campus. Is there any of you in this book, I guess? It's so trite to say, but I feel like most authors would say that every character is them and yet none, none of the characters are them as well. In terms of this novel, um, I'm a visiting or not a visiting, I'm assistant professor now like Agatha was. Um, I was an RA for one year, like Millie, and I was voted RA of the year, even though I think I had to beat out like three other people. So very low bar. And I've been a lonely transfer student like Kennedy as well. I've definitely dipped in and out of a lot of the worlds of these people, but this is a complete work of fiction, I promise. So I think the thing that connects these three main characters is isolation. Can you talk about emphasizing isolation, especially for young people on campus, away from their homes, and how that pushed your characters to do things they might not always do? It's a great question. College is a very interesting time and place because you were living on your own for the first time in a place and you may live in a dorm and have this glorified underpaid RA who's like a babysitter, but not really. And you're really figuring it out on your own. And college is really fascinating because it's like this mini utopia because within the United States, it's one of the only times you'll live in a walkable city. You have a lot more free time. If you're not working, you can change your major or go to an improv show and meet new people. And there's all of these great shared resources that are usually pretty well funded. But if you lift up the, the edges, you'll see pretty quickly that inequality is just as rampant, even though students are all going to the same classes or, or eating at the same place. A dorm room for me was such a hothouse for all of these things to happen at the same time and for that loneliness to really settle in for certain characters. This novel in particular, I wanted to explore consumption as a symptom of loneliness. Kennedy just loves buying things. She doesn't think that she has a relationship to money, but whenever she gets nervous or has a panic attack, she finds herself at Target just sifting around the aisles. Millie is a bit more organized. She wants to buy a house and she has this project that she's looking forward to. And these are markers for her of adulthood and being a grown up in a bit of a simplistic way. And Agatha getting over a breakup is just splurging. She's getting sushi all the time. She's walking out whenever she wants. And she keeps saying to herself, I can do whatever I want. So yeah, they all have a very interesting relationship to loneliness. And I think that that controls how they spend their money as well. We need to take a break. More with Kylie Reed in a minute. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from the University of Michigan's Go Blue Guarantee, Committed to keeping a U of M undergraduate education within reach of all Michigan residents, regardless of socioeconomic status. Programs are available for all three campuses. More at goblueguarantee.umich.edu. 
I think this book is compelling, character-driven, and easy to follow along with. I, I really think it toes the line of literary fiction and young adult in a way that's going to be super approachable to hopefully a lot of college kids. But um, I, I'm just wondering, who did you write this novel for? You know, when you're writing a novel, it's crazy because you want everyone to love it. At the same time, the best thing that you can do is just take the blueprint of your brain and put it down on the page and not be concerned with what you think people want to see. Um, who I hope loves this novel. I hope anyone who has ever lived in a dorm or had a roommate they couldn't stand picks up this book. I hope that anyone who loves gossip or anyone who's nosy like me and just wants to hear other people's business can pick up this book as well. Um, I hope anyone who's interested in how money works and language around money and the nightmare of buying things and not knowing what to buy and what that thing says about you can pick up this book as well. Um, and I hope anyone who loves dialogue loves this book as well, because I love to write about dialogue. Would you like to do a reading for us? Sure. I'm going to read from chapter two. This is Residence Life Move-In Day. And here we have Colette and Millie, two RAs, and they are getting to know each other. Millie laughed through her nose. Was Joni in Southgate with you? No, she wasn't. Thank God, Colette said. But we both worked at Clubhouse Fitness last summer, and she was annoying for obvious reasons. But then, okay, so when the minimum wage changed from 8 to 8.50, I made this presentation on how I should be getting 9.50 because I was killing it over there. I got like four old people to start taking Pilates, probably added years to their lives, and they love me, but whatever. Anyway, the management ate it up. They were like, ooh, PowerPoint, look at this initiative. And they gave me 9.16 an hour, which was dumb, but I was like, fine. But then Joni was like, how is that fair? I've worked here longer than you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, you've worked here like four months longer, but if you want to raise, then go ask, loser. And she was like, that's not the point. That's disrespectful. At this, Colette looked up. With a Sharpie in hand, she did that quick, listless motion for someone jerking off. And she was just a huge dick to me all summer. She'd be like, hey, Colette, the spa water needs ice. Like, ooh, okay, thanks for telling me. Millie smiled. That's really dumb, she said. I know. She's such a pill. She also got pissed because this one time, I don't even remember what I said, but I had always assumed she was gay because Colette lifted her shoulders like fucking duh. And I said something about it and she was like, what? Why would you say that? And I was like, whoa, my bad, but I'm gay. So chill out. But yeah, when I saw her name on the dorm list, I was like, wow, I'm going to jail this year. But then I asked Amy who I was paired with and I was like, okay, fine. She seems normal. At this, Millie experienced what she knew was a surplus of flattery and what felt like an adolescent intrigue at learning that Colette was gay. In order to not draw attention to Colette's gayness, something she hadn't considered one way or the other, Millie picked up another sheet of cards. Thanks so much. I think that was a great choice. And that that dialogue and everything learned there definitely stood out to me. So thank you for that. My next question is just how did you choose the title? Come and Get It came at the very end. This book took four years to write, and I don't think that Come and Get It came until three and a half years in. I never usually have titles when I'm working. I want the work to speak to me a little bit. But I would say for the last year or so, I was calling the novel Suey. I don't know if you know of Woo Pig Suey, but that is the mascot, the Razorback chant at the University of Arkansas as they cheer for their football teams or whoever else. It's called a hog call. They were calling the hogs in support of their team. But every time I would say Suey, people would say to me, Shuey, Zooey, and they couldn't really quite get what I was saying. And one day I was talking to my agent and she said, well, what does Suey mean? It's like a pig call. It's like, hey, here pig, come and get it. And I said, there's something in there. 
And there there are three characters here coming to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and they all want to get something very different. And on top of that, this is a book about money and consumption. And I think Come and Get It is emblematic of that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad I asked that question. And you were so good with titles. Such a fun age. Come and get it. You will pick those up off the bookstore. So, yeah, I think I, I, I'm going to switch gears a little bit away from the book. But you're really immersed in college life as a professor and living in a college town. What do you think of Ann Arbor? And are MFAs a good place for writers? Ann Arbor is beautiful. There's something about living in a place with four true seasons that really helps me as a writer. Um, you want to hunker down in the winter and eat all the warm stuff and just write and in the summertime. It's just kind of a magical place. So, so far, Ann Arbor is really wonderful and definitely a great place for my family and I. Is MFA a good place for writers? There's so much to be said about the MFA. Here's my take on it as someone who's taught at a few MFA programs now. There are certain MFA programs that really care about your students, and I'm so happy to say that I teach at one of them. The Helen Zell program just keeps the students first all the time. They have such a talented, bright crew and a wonderful faculty. And I don't think there's a lot of people who can say they like who they work with. And I really like who I work with. My two cents on an MFA. One, you do not have to have one. College does not have to make you a writer. That's not necessarily a place for everyone, especially if you have a family or you can't move just anywhere. There are other things that you can do. And my second note is that if you're going to get an MFA, try your best to not pay. There are tons of colleges and grants that will pay for you to go to school. I didn't know that until way too late, I believe. So I would try to not pay for one if you want to go and have time to study and write. Kylie, talking with you and reading your book was such a pleasure. It was the first book I read this year, and I definitely found it to be a page turner. Thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is lovely. Come and Get It is officially out today. It will also be Michigan Public's next book club read. So stay tuned to michiganpublic.org for more information. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm Brianna Rice. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganpublic.org. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blink, Ronya Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meridian and Lauren Neong. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music from Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Network. Thanks for listening. Brianna, I'm going to say something that I hope you were not offended by. You actually give me like Millie vibes oh a God, little bit. Really? <laughs> I love that, actually. <laughs>